Introduction Welcome to the story of Dublin's Cabbage Garden Burial Ground, an audio guide produced on behalf of Dublin City Council. Join us as we guide you through the story of one of the city's lesser-known historic graveyards, hidden away in the heart of Dublin's liberties. In use today as a small public park, the Cabbage Garden retains only scant clues pointing to its original use. But the aged and weathered headstones that survive near the park entrance stand in testament to a former function, and to the generations of Dubliners who lie buried here, providing tantalising hints at the rich tale of the city's past that the Cabbage Garden has to tell. Nestled among the buildings and streets of Dublin's south inner city, the small Cabbage Garden Park is found at the end of Cathedral Lane, a narrow laneway leading off Kevin Street. Just to the north rises the iconic edifice of St. Patrick's Cathedral and the historic quarter that includes Marsh's Library, two sites that played an important role in the Cabbage Garden story. Indeed, the Cabbage Garden once lay within the precincts of St. Patrick's Cathedral, and forms part of the parish of St. Nicholas Without. This parish was so named because it lay just outside the city walls. The part of the parish protected by the old city walls was called St. Nicholas Within. Though it became an important burial ground, the history of the Cabbage Garden, and the name it bears, predate its use as a final resting place for Dublin's dead. In the middle of the 17th century, at a time when Ireland was engulfed in war, the Cabbage Garden was said to have been used by the soldiers of Oliver Cromwell to grow their favourite vegetable, cabbages. The name stuck. But within a few decades, the burial needs of the inhabitants of St Nicholas Without and St Patrick's Close caused the garden to be set aside as a burial ground. A few years later, a new immigrant group, the French Huguenots, began to make use of a portion of the burial ground, ever after known as the French burial grounds in the northwest corner of the site. These communities buried their dead at the Cabbage Garden for the next two centuries, before it fell into disuse and abandonment in the early 20th century. The Cabbage Garden was eventually converted into a public park. This audio guide tells the story of the Cabbage Garden, taking you from its origins through to the present day. We'll explore different aspects of the site's history, recounting the stories of some of those who once used it, and even some who continue to rest there even now. We will also place the Cabbage Garden in its wider context, exploring its relationship to buildings like St. Patrick's Cathedral and Marsh's Library, and to communities like the Huguenots and the families of the Liberties who made their homes around it. You will also hear from Cathy Scuffle, historian-in-residence with Dublin City Council, who will describe the more modern story of the Cabbage Garden and what the site means to those who make their home in this part of the Liberties today. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our journey, one that begins at the beginning with the origins of the Cabbage Garden. The Origins of the Cabbage Garden 
The Cabbage Garden is located in one of Dublin's famous areas known as the Liberties. The Dublin Liberties are one of the capital's most historic and important inner-city neighbourhoods. They owe their origins to medieval Dublin. In centuries past, the Liberties were positioned just outside the city walls and were controlled by an elite who enjoyed special financial and legal privileges, or Liberties. The Cabbage Garden forms part of the Liberty of St Sepulchre, which fell under the power of the Archbishop of Dublin. Originally, this liberty was made up of the land around St Patrick's Cathedral and extended to the corner of St Stephen's Green slash Harcourt Street, to Donnybrook, to Rathgar, to Harold's Cross, and back up to St Patrick's as far as Harold's Cross, where the Archbishop's gallows once stood. The cathedral was in its own very small liberty, which consisted of the building and land immediately surrounding it, and it was known as the Dean's Liberty. Located at the heart of the Liberty of St Sepulchre, the Cabbage Garden is a stone's throw from some of the Liberty's important buildings in the vicinity, such as Marsh's Library and St Patrick's Cathedral Deanery. That proximity is reflected in the name of the main access road to the Cabbage Garden, once called Church Lane and now known as Cathedral Lane. Despite its proximity to one of the centres of religious belief, the Cabbage Garden was used in the medieval period to grow food, including, as we will hear later, for Oliver Cromwell's soldiers. But in the late 17th century, the Cabbage Garden became permanently linked to St Patrick's Cathedral in a most intimate way. The cemetery at the cathedral had been filling up, and so the dean and his staff needed to find an additional burying ground for their Protestant congregation. They settled on the Cabbage Garden. In 1666, St. Patrick's acquired it from Philip Fernley, who was a senior administrator in Dublin and clerk to the Irish House of Commons. The annual rent was five shillings a year. Despite its change in function, the new churchyard would continue to be known as the Cabbage Garden. In 1683, the new Protestant French Huguenot community in Dublin, some of whom worshipped in St. Patrick's, requested use of a part of the burial ground. The cathedral granted them a strip of land at the northwestern edge, telling them that they had to enclose it with a stone and brick wall and an iron gate. The strip that the Huguenots received can still be traced at the Cabbage Garden today. Members of Dublin's Church of Ireland community and Huguenots continued to use the Cabbage Garden Cemetery for over two centuries. The last Huguenot burial took place in 1858 and the graveyard was finally closed in the early 20th century. In the years that followed, the site fell into disrepair. A visitor in 1978 described how the grass is tall and rank, the headstones broken and chipped, some lying almost flat, while a number have been removed from their graves and ranged around the walls. Not long afterwards, Dublin Corporation gave over part of the graveyard environs to public housing, converting the graveyard into a public park. It continues to serve the local population in that capacity today, though reminders of those who lie buried there can be still seen, recalled by the few remaining headstones that line some of the cemetery walls.
Cromwell's cabbages. During the 1640s, Dublin, like much of Ireland, was engulfed in violence. The civil war that spread throughout Ireland, Scotland and England would come to the very gates of Dublin. In an effort to meet this threat, by 1649, the city was defended by a network of earthen fortifications. They were designed to supplement the crumbling and ancient medieval walls that could do little to resist the weapons of the new age of gunpowder. Some of these new defences ran right past the Cabbage Garden. A visitor to the spot in that summer of 1649 would have seen these ramparts rising just to the south of the site, manned by grizzled veterans of almost a decade of war. Traces of these defensive works were encountered by archaeologists almost 400 years later. 1649 was also the year that brought death to their very doorstep. Any locals in the area that summer found that they had a front-row seat to the awful sights, sounds and realities of 17th-century warfare. In August 1649, one of the great clashes of the war was played out in nearby Rathmines, when the parliamentarians, who controlled the city, bloodily beat back a Confederate and Royalist advance. Just days later, one of the most notorious figures in the island's history arrived in Dublin, when Oliver Cromwell made landfall at Ring's End on the 15th of August 1649. Before long, he would march north to Drogheda, where his fearful and infamous reputation for merciless war in Ireland would begin. But he, and more accurately his parliamentarian soldiers, left behind an enduring mark on the Cabbage Garden and the surrounding area. Legend tells that they had used St. Patrick's Cathedral to stable their horses and had commandeered a strip of nearby land to cultivate one of their staple foods, cabbages. The use to which Cromwell's men put this patch of land was remembered, and the name stuck. Ever after, it became known as the Cabbage Garden. Huguenot Connections, St. Patrick's and St. Peter's. Since its very beginnings, Dublin has been an international city. Centuries of immigration have seen its streets hum with the sounds of strange and exotic languages, and its buildings provide sanctuary and opportunity to cultures from near and far. One of the most prominent immigrant groups to find a place in Dublin were the people known as the Huguenots. As Calvinist Protestants, they faced religious persecution in their native France, so during the late 17th century, thousands abandoned their homes and all they knew to seek refuge abroad. Many landed on Ireland's shores. They would go on to make a major contribution to the economic and cultural vibrancy of both the city and the island. The Protestant Huguenots were warmly welcomed to Dublin by the government. To make them feel at home, they were even provided with a place of worship within St. Patrick's Cathedral, one of the capital's two great cathedral churches. From 1665, the Lady Chapel, located behind the main altar, was given over to Huguenot worship and was renamed l'Église Française de Saint-Patrick. It can still be seen today, surrounded by reminders of Huguenot life in the city, such as the Huguenot Bell, which is dedicated 
to the glory of God and in the memory of the coming of the Huguenots to Dublin, 1685. The Huguenots were Calvinists, a branch of Protestantism that followed the Christian practices as set down by John Calvin. In Ireland, some Huguenots chose to conform closely with the dominant Anglican Protestantism of the Church of Ireland, but others preferred to retain their own organisation and were known as non-conformist. As a result, by 1700, Dublin Huguenots were split into multiple congregations. Some who conformed, like those at St. Patrick's Cathedral and at St. Mary's on St. Mary's Abbey Street, and those who did not, who worshipped on Bride Street and at St. Peter's on Peter Street. Having successfully carved out new lives and new congregations in Dublin, the city's Huguenots also had to find a place to bury their dead. Those who did not conform with the Church of Ireland eventually established the famous Huguenot burial ground at Marion Row in 1699. But those who did conform, such as the Huguenots who worshipped at St. Patrick's Cathedral's Lady Chapel, used the burial ground at the Cabbage Garden. The Archbishop granted them a small strip of the cemetery in the 1680s, in return for a fee payable to the church wardens of St. Patrick's Cathedral. This special section became known as the French Graveyard, and though its headstones have long been moved, it survives today as a distinct enclosed strip in the Cabbage Garden's northwest corner. When they consecrated their part of the graveyard, the Huguenots offered up a special prayer. Accept, we beseech thee, the small offering which we this day presumed to dedicate to the honour of thy holy name. Preserve it from all human violation and barbarianism, that the bones of thy servants which be gathered here may lie quiet and undisturbed. Members of the Huguenot community would continue to be buried at Cabbage Garden up to 1858. Among them were those whose names would rise to greatness in Ireland, such as early members of the Latouche family, the great bankers associated with the origins of the Bank of Ireland. But among the handful of surviving headstones at Cabbage Garden are reminders of other, more ordinary members of Dublin's Huguenot community. The memorials to people like Jean Allen, James Varille, Jean Pinot, Stephen Lupierre, women and men who died as Dubliners, but whose names betrayed the French Huguenot origins of which they were so proud. Cathy Scuffle, historian in residence with Dublin City Council, discusses Huguenots in the Liberties. You find a lot of unusual surnames in the Liberties as well, which give you a clue to the heritage of the people that settled there. So you find Huguenot surnames like Lestrange, like Hassett, which would have come from Hayset, of Devereux, Ludlow, there are other surnames. My own is Scuffle, but it comes from Escoville, which is actually a Norman name. So we have long, long connections with the area. And yet people would know your family. The beauty of living in a community like that and having connections with it is, when the conversation starts and you get past hello, the next line is, was your granddad one of the, whatever your surname is, who worked in Jacob Skinnis's powers, whatever it might be, they'll they reel them off. And he married one of the 
lady's name who was out of the Ivy Trust, the, the flats that were along Patrick. And immediately your, your genealogy is presented to you on a plate. You know your sense of place and they know you're from there. And that's the way conversations go and that's the way the community has developed. Cathy also discusses one of the key means of employment, which was a central part of the economy of the area. Weaving. If we go back to 1801, where we have the big act of union, Dublin loses its parliament, loses all its fashionable society. This fashionable society, the peers of the realm, the lords, the ladies, would have been very fashion conscious. So they would have bought all their silks and their cottons and their finely woven trousseaus all around the liberties. And of course, when they relocate to London, we start to lose that industry and it slowly gets worse. I came across an amazing account, uh, 1829 in the British Parliamentary Papers. The Earl of Kildare stood up and said there were 20,000 looms silent in the city of Dublin. And that's such a loaded statement because that's major industry stopped. Well, it's 20,000 families because each one of those looms would have been located in a house and the whole family would have been involved in working in the weaving industry. So for even from the children, from carding the fleece to making the fibres to the maybe the parents, the mother of the house spinning it into a, a thread and the man would actually weave the cloth and then it would go out the front door of the house into an agency and brought forth. So, when we're talking about weaving, don't think of a cardigan or a jumper. Think of a sail for a sailing ship yeah. or a marquee for the yeah. big military campaigns. This was weaving on an industrial scale and it took place in the Liberties of Dublin. Eli Bucheru and Marsh's Library. In late 1685, La Rochelle physician Eli Bucheru was faced with a desperate decision. In October that year, France's King Louis XIV had revoked the Edict of Nantes, the law that had provided French Huguenots, including Eli's family, with some small measure of protection. Eli's Protestant religion had already seen him barred from practicing medicine and expelled from La Rochelle. But now his very life was at stake. He acted fast. His first move was to secure the possessions that were more precious to him than gold, his personal library. Somehow, he smuggled a vast collection across the English Channel, even as he sought desperately to get himself and his family out of the country. In January 1686, Eli, his widowed mother, his wife, and five of their children safely made landfall in England. But not all the Buharus made it. Eli's youngest daughter, Madeline, was imprisoned in a convent, where she soon died. His youngest son, Jean, was also still trapped in France, causing Eli to launch another daring and dangerous mission, returning in secrecy to bring him out. Finally, with almost all of his family and his precious books secure, Eli was in a position to try and rebuild his life. Eli Bohuru's connection to Ireland came when another prominent Huguenot, Henri Matthieu de Rouveny, Earl of Galway, became one of Ireland's Lord Justices in 1697. As to Rouveny's secretary, Eli travelled with him, 
once established in the country, Eli joined Dublin's Huguenot community. He became a member of the Huguenot congregation who worshipped at St. Patrick's Cathedral and who buried their dead at the Cabbage Garden. Though he could not have known it then, Eli's arrival and his foresight in saving his books set in train a legacy that has endured through the centuries, helping to form the basis for one of Dublin's great institutions. In 1701, Eli became a priest in the Church of Ireland, and in the same year he got a new job as the first librarian of the books collected by Archbishop Narcissus Marsh. Marsh's library, as it became known, was formally established by an Act of Parliament in 1707. Located at St. Patrick's Close, it survives today as Ireland's oldest public library and is a must-see for all visitors to Dublin. The majority of its approximately 25,000 volumes date from the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries, but it also holds almost 100 pre-15th century works and 300 manuscripts. Among them are the books of Eli Bohru, the same volumes rescued so dramatically from France in the 1680s. It was part of the deal when Eli was appointed that his collection would be merged with Marsh's library upon his death. He was true to his word. They remain there now for all to see, still shelved together in their original bindings offering a window into the life of one of Ireland's most fascinating 17th-century Huguenot émigrés. The story of how they came to be in Dublin is almost as compelling as their contents, and it was a story that didn't end with their housing at Marshes. Visitors today should keep an eye out for modern bullet holes in some of Eli's books, a legacy of stray fire during the tumultuous 1916 Easter Rising in Dublin. As for Eli, he passed away in 1719. His status meant that rather than being buried at the Cabbage Garden, he was instead interred within St. Patrick's Cathedral. Perhaps the most valuable of all the manuscripts he left behind for marshes was his own personal diary, since published, which preserves for us a unique record of both Eli and Dublin's Huguenot community. The Guinness Family and the Ivy Trust. The 19th century story of the liberties that surrounded the Cabbage Garden was one of extremes. The area witnessed breathtaking industrial success stories, particularly in the fields of brewing and distilling, in which it became a world leader. Chief amongst them was the famous brewery established by Arthur Guinness in the Liberties. In 1759, he took on a 9,000-year lease at St. James's Gate, creating a brewing business that by the end of the 19th century had grown to become the largest in the world. But for the ordinary people, those whose labours powered this industrial success, the liberties could be a world of extreme hardship and trial. These workers were forced to live on low wages and in overcrowded conditions, it wasn't long before areas such as those around the Cabbage Garden were home to some of the most infamous slums in Europe. As the 19th century progressed, efforts began to try and improve the awful conditions faced by so many in the Liberties. Among those to step forward was Edward Guinness, the great-grandson of the famous brewery's founder. 
Aside from his role within the Guinness business, Edward sat as an MP and also served as Lord Mayor of Dublin. The keen interest he developed in improving the lot of those in the liberties led to his establishment of the Guinness Trust. It sought to provide the working poor, like those living in and around the Cabbage Garden, with sound, clean and affordable housing. One of the elements of the Guinness Trust was known as the Ivy Trust, which had a specific mission to help homeless people, something it is still engaged in to this day. Edward's Guinness Trust soon began to engage in major urban renewal projects in and around St. Patrick's Cathedral. Among their legacies near the Cabbage Garden is the Bull Alley Estate, built between 1901 and 1905. Its 213 apartments were part of a major effort to provide secure and sanitary homes for local workers. The apartments are still there, though they have now been modernised. If you are interested in seeing what an apartment was like when they were built, visitors can make an appointment to visit apartment number 3B, once the home of Nellie Malloy. Nellie's family lived at the address for almost 90 years, and the interior still looks much as it did back in 1905, as the Trust have designated it as a museum. The Trust wasn't just interested in housing. It engaged in many projects aimed at improving the social lives of local people. Among them was the construction of the Ivy Baths, which opened in 1906 to supply bathing and washhouse facilities to the working classes. Another initiative was the Ivy Play Centre, which sought to provide both skills and entertainment to the boys and girls of the Liberties. It quickly became known as the Baino, slang for a party, and entered Dublin legend. It was even immortalised in song. Tiptoe to the Baino, where the kids go, to get their buns and cocoa. Come tiptoe to the Baino with me. Edward and the Trust's impact on this part of Dublin were far-reaching. As well as setting up the Trust, he provided funding directly to help support St Patrick's Cathedral and Marsh's Library. He even designed St Patrick's Park beside the Cathedral, gifting it to the people to act as a breathing lung for the city, a role it continues to play today. Cathy Scuffle, historian-in-residence with Dublin City Council, discusses daily life in the Liberties. If you're looking at people's daily lives, take, for example, your daily shop. Where would you go? It would have been somewhere like Mead Street, Thomas Street, and then into the city centre, but people stayed locally. Mead Street is the centre of the Liberties. Always has been, and I hope always will be. The market tradition was huge in the area. If we go back to the days pre-television and pre-Facebook and pre-Twitter and pre-everything else that we have today, a lot of people's social lives centred around the religious grouping that they were in. So your church would have become important for other things during the week, such as meetings, missions, processions all the key religious events in the year, no matter what religion you were, they would have been celebrated. The May procession would be something that people talk about. All the houses would be painted up. People would put out flags and bunting. People would make the bunting. Children would be dressed up. 
Then there would be a big occasion, meet up at the church, walk along the streets. The other things were connections with your job or your trade union. So most of the big industries in the area, such as Jacobs, such as Powers, such as Rose, the distilling tradition, making whiskey, and then, of course, the brewing tradition. There would be big involvement in your job. Your social life would centre around your job and then centre around maybe your trade union organising days out, organising meetings. There are other events that were important too. A considerable number of the population in the area would be artisans, skilled people with a particular craft. You had your carpenters, you had plasterers, painters, you had people who were gas fitters. So you'd find everyone had a trade and usually the house had that trade. Every boy, every man in the house would be of the same trade. You followed the trade of your father. It was jokingly said of Black Pits one time, you could build an entire house by the trades in the the few houses that are in that particular area. So everybody had a trade and followed the trade. And that tradition of serving your time gave you a plan for the future. And when apprenticeships became less in vogue, we lost something of that. So a lot of your social life and the key buildings in your life would have centred around either where you worked, where your father worked, where your mum shopped, and what church and denomination you attended. A vibrant community. Cathy Scuffle, historian in residence with Dublin City Council, tells us more about the development of Cabbage Garden and the Liberties. So the Cabbage Garden is one of the graveyards located in the wider Liberties area. If you were looking at the landscape around it, the things you would see would be obviously the cathedral and the big rectory that goes with the cathedral, they would have been dominant buildings on your landscape. Together with the old palace of the sepulchre, which was beside it, we would have all known it as Kevin Street Garda Station in more recent times. So they would be the immediate vicinity. If you were looking a little bit further out, you're looking at the coombe, which is an old English word for a wooded valley. So the River Poddle would have dominated the landscape as well. In fact, the junction at Patrick Street, Kevin Street, uh, New Street Junction there is called Cross Poddle on old maps. And you find that address on the poddle featuring in a lot of the early records in the area. If you're looking at the liberties in the 19th and the 20th century, you're looking at an area in decline and it's in decline for a number of reasons. 1801, where we've the big act of union, Dublin loses its parliament loses all its fashionable society. This fashionable society, the peers of the realm, the lords, the ladies, would have been very fashion conscious. So they would have bought all their silks and their cottons and their finely woven trousseaus all around the liberties. And of course, when they relocate to London, we start to lose that industry and it slowly gets worse. We all know what happens in the 1840s. We have famine in the country. A lot of people locate to the area. Slowly it turns into more tenements, slum industries. It wouldn't have been a very pleasant place to live, it would have been quite congested, didn't have a lot of basic facilities, 
And on top of that, it's the industrial heartland of Dublin. So you have other industries like the brewing, the famous Guinness Brewery. The Watkins Brewery was second in size only to Guinness's. We would have had the distilling, the whiskey makers such as Rose, such as Powers. These were huge employers, but the local workers were mainly the laborers from the area. And it's those people that are living near their job on the lower grades. So they didn't really have long term tenure. And when you don't have that, you can't really plan a future. If we look at the liberties in the 20th century, it's an area beginning to change, but change in a different way. And it's badly affected by a number of plans that are put in place, but put on the long finger. So there's a number of road plans planned for the city. These are, you know, being discussed all through the, the 40s, the 50s. We've got to try and do something about the actual quality of roads that we, we need in the city. And there was a thinking that we should perhaps bring motorways into the city. And these road plans changed from month to month, week to week, year to year. They, one, week, one year they'd be widening this side of the street. The next year, no, we're not going to do that. We'll widen the other. And that has an effect on all the leases in the area because people just have short-term leases. We don't know whether this is going to be a roadway or a shop next year or a pub next year or whatever. The road may go here. Those plans bounced around for quite a number of years and to put them in exact context with the Cabbage Garden, one of the roadways was that planned from Christchurch down Nicholas Street, down Patrick Street, up New Street, which is exactly where the Cabbage Garden is, and up Clambrasa Street. So the road that we see there today is the eventual outcome of those plans that have been bouncing around for years. But it was affected in another way because you also had the emergence of new suburbs in Dublin. Suburbs that could provide you with basic things like in-house sanitation, a front garden and a back garden, a new school for the children to go to. There's an actual migration of people out of the Liberties to the new suburbs. So an awful lot of people living out around Crumlin, Drimna, Talla, Clondalkin, they claim their heritage back to the Liberties because that is where they came from. Cathy Scuffle shares her memories of Cabbage Garden. It was a two-part cemetery. It had its Huguenot section to the front and it had its general section to the back. However, it wasn't being used as a current burial place, certainly in my living memory. I can remember it being pointed out to me when I was a child from the top of a bus when I'd be going into town with my dad. And he'd say, that's where Cromwell grew his cabbages. And, and it was always pointed out like that. Notable burials. Although it no longer looks like a graveyard, the Cabbage Garden remains the final resting place of hundreds of Dubliners. Each had their own life story, their own trials and tribulations, their own loves and losses. The names and backgrounds of most of those interred at Cabbage Garden are lost to history. But memories of a precious few remain surviving in the remnants of inscriptions that cling to the handfuls of faded and damaged headstones along the park's eastern wall. 
What the stones reveal is that this was a burial place for local people. It was here that people like Thomas Hunter from Blackpits, Margaret Parrott of Wood Quay, Juliana Bernard of Bridge Street and Catherine Carmichael from St Stephen's Green were interred when their lives came to a close. The stones also record something of the professions of those who could afford to have their names sculpted in stone, a luxury beyond the means of many of the 18th and 19th century Dublin. Thomas Parsons had worked as a timber merchant, while John Marr was an apothecary. Luke Waldron of Christchurch Lane, who was buried at the Cabbage Garden in 1743, had been a sword cutler, a maker of swords. Francis Smith of Ye Coombe had worked as a merchant until death took him in 1766. His headstone at Cabbage Garden also captures something of the harsh realities of 18th century life and death. It narrates that along with his remains, here lieth fourteen of his children. Death often came early for those in the Cabbage Garden. Elizabeth Crosby from New Street was just 22 when she died in 1811. Natalie Field died in 1757 at the age of 29, and seven of her children are buried with her. Across the centuries, it is still possible to imagine the grief of Henry Metcalfe of the Poddle, who buried his beloved son John at Cabbage Garden at the age of just ten years. He had the mason carve the following lines into his son's memorial. Passengers, as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so shall you be. Think of God and follow me. The Metcalfe's address of the Poddle is a reminder of the river of that name that played such an important role in the development of this part of the city, but which has long since disappeared into culverts beneath the city streets. Cathy Scuffle, historian in residence with Dublin City Council, shares a story about the River Poddle. We all know that uh, folk song. There was an old woman and she lived in the woods, a wheela wheela ballya, and of course she lives by the river Salia. But Salia is another name for the puddle. And Salia comes from the Irish word salak, meaning dirty. So it gives you an idea of the condition of the puddle by the time it's gone through multiple mills along its course. When it hits the liberties at that stage, it's not the most pleasant of streams. This is in times gone by when it was used as a power source. But if we bring in the story a little bit more up to date and think about the song again, what did the woman do? She kills her child and the child is found or is dumped in the River Salia. The recent archaeological dig in Ship Street, just behind Dublin Castle, discovered the remains of a child that they know died a violent death in the course of the original river. I'm not saying anything, but you don't have folk songs for nothing. While most of those buried at the Cabbage Garden remain little known, there are some who were remembered by history. They include Thomas Walsh, who in the 18th century converted from Catholicism to become a famed early Methodist minister. He even preached with the father of Methodism, John Wesley. Thomas's body was later relocated, but someone whose remains still lie there are those of Edward Ledwich, 
buried at the Cabbage Garden in 1823. Edward was a well-known clergyman and antiquarian. He published the Antiquities of Ireland in 1790, edited a number of other works on the Irish past, and was an early member of the Royal Irish Academy. With its headstones largely gone, it is hard to imagine that this small park was once a cemetery and that it remains the final resting place for so many. Their presence and the fragmentary traces of the stones that memorialize them are a reminder of the long and rich story of this part of Dublin's liberties. Conclusion. Thank you for listening to the Cabbage Garden Audio Guide. We hope you've enjoyed exploring the story of the graveyard and remembering some of those who are interred within it. A small number of headstones remain in Cabbage Garden Park and a commemorative plaque remembers the Huguenot burial ground. If you are interested in other aspects of Dublin's ecclesiastical and Huguenot history, why not check out some other nearby sites that are maintained by Dublin City Council? In the Coombe, you can find the remains of 18th-century St. Luke's, a church where some members of the Huguenot congregation once worshipped. St. Kevin's Park in Camden Row is home to the ruins of another church, established in the 13th century and dedicated to St. Kevin of Glendalough. In 1698, it was offered to the Huguenot community as a place where they could worship and bury their dead. This audio guide was written and produced by Abarta Heritage on behalf of Dublin City Council. The script was written by Damien Shields. Historical research was carried out by Dr. Coleman Dennehy. Narration was by Gerry O'Brien and the guide was produced in Bluebird Studios, County Dublin with sound engineer Declan Lonigan and producer Roisin Burke. Special thanks to Dublin City Council historian in residence, Cathy Scuffle, for her assistance during the guide production and her contributions to the guide itself. If you would like to hear more about Dublin's fascinating historical burial grounds, visit the Dublin City Council website. Here you will find additional free audio guides for the Huguenot Cemetery on Merion Row and the Jewish Cemetery in Ballybock. You can find more audiobooks exploring the stories of other heritage sites around Ireland on our website at abartaheritage.ie. We hope you've enjoyed exploring the story of the Cabbage Garden burial ground and please spare a thought for those peacefully interred here.